Welcome to this webinar series, Physical Activity Researcher Podcast and International Society for Physical Activity and Health, ISPA, have started collaboration. We have edited their webinars to audio-only podcast versions, so you can listen them also on the go. Our mission is to advance science and share scientific knowledge, so if your organization has relevant webinars or lectures and would like to get more audience to them, please let us know. But without further ado, let's jump to the webinar. Good morning, good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome back to the second day and the final batch of presentations for uh, our fourth annual ProPass conference. Um, for those who don't know me, my name is Andy Akin. I'm an associate professor in behavioral epidemiology at the University of East Anglia in the UK. And uh, I'm also a member of the ProPass working group uh, with particular uh, kind of contribution to retrospective harmonization of the social, behavioral and health related data um, that our um, contributing cohorts kindly share with the consortium. Uh, so the next two presentations uh, on the program are from our partners in ISPA, starting with Dr. Karen Milton. So uh, Karen is Associate Professor in Public Health, also at the University of East Anglia. And she is also President-elect of the International Society for Physical Activity and Health. Her primary research interests are in understanding what works to get populations more active in how and how to translate evidence into policy and practice. Uh, as you can see, Karen's presentation is titled From Device Data to Guidelines to Population Behaviour Change. I can see you've already started sharing, Karen, so over to you, take it away. Thanks, Andy. I think I've got the worst bit over now I've shared my screen. Uh, hopefully there'll be no uh, tech issues, but if there are, you know, if the slides aren't moving on or anything, just give me a shout. Okay, so I've been given the broad topic of how we move from devices to guidelines to population behavior change surveillance, uh, quite a broad topic. But I'm going to do my best at highlighting what I think some of the implications are for guideline development um, and a few other issues. So if I just remind us where we are with guidelines, the first global guidelines on physical activity were published by the WHO in 2010. Those guidelines were informed by the large systematic review done in the US to inform the US guidelines published in 2008. Now, these guidelines back in 2008 and 2010 were based entirely on self-report data because that's what we had available at the time. If we fast forward to 2020, new guidelines were released this time on physical activity and sedentary behavior. The inclusion of sedentary behavior reflected developments in the evidence over the 10 year period from 2010 to 2020. Again, the WHO process built on earlier reviews, the reviews done in the US, uh, Canada and Australia. What we did as a guideline development group uh, co-chaired by Manos was we updated those earlier reviews and we looked at the entire body of evidence. So we looked at the evidence that was included in the earlier the earlier reviews plus the updates, and we came up with the global guidelines. 
Now, while device data provided insights that shaped the 2020 guidelines, the guidelines still relied almost entirely on evidence from studies with self-report data. If we continue this 10-year cycle, and it sounds from the session just before that it's quite encouraging that we might continue this 10-year cycle, that means we can expect a new WHO guidelines potentially in 2030. So as the volume of device data increases through projects such as ProPass, it's timely that we think about what are the implications of device data for guideline development. If we think about physical activity behavior and measurement of physical activity behavior, here we have a person who's taken part in a game of tennis that lasted for one hour. If we ask that person to tell us how physically active they've been, they're likely to tell us they've done 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity. If we were to put a device on this person, we might find that that one hour of tennis consisted of 10 minutes of vigorous activity, 15 minutes moderate and 35 minutes light. So the device data gives us a much more detailed and some would argue accurate picture of how that one hour of tennis was actually spent across different intensities. And importantly, we might learn that this person's actually done around 50% of the amount of MVPA that they think they've done when, they, when it was self-reported. So these tools are providing us with fundamentally different information. So on the one hand, we have self-report, which is providing us with what I've termed behavioral bouts. When we're measuring via self-report, we usually capture moderate to vigorous physical activity. We're mostly capturing leisure time. We capture purposeful and or structured type activities, and we capture the activities that are most easily recalled. When we move to devices, uh, we're capturing what I call movement bouts, with thanks to you, actually, Andy. I think you gave me that name. And that includes all domains, all intensities, all bout durations, and there's no reliance on recall. So therefore, we're getting a much more complete picture of total physical activity. This distinction is captured nicely by the statement that I've put on the slide from the paper that's currently under review reference at the top. And that's the questionnaires capture blocks of time physical activity behavior is contained within, including interruptions and rest, and have limitations in measuring the, act the actual time spent in physical activity of a certain intensity, which is what wearable devices capture. So how are devices changing the evidence base? Here's just my thoughts on the situation. So devices are providing new insights into the role of light intensity activity. Previously, when we've measured physical activity via self-report, we haven't really asked about light intensity. We always talk about moderate to vigorous. Even if we didn't, light intensity activity is typically harder to recall. So people probably wouldn't report it unless we specifically asked for it, but, but we haven't. So there's a whole intensity of physical activity that we've previously completely overlooked. Devices are allowing exploration of the role of bouts of various lengths. So we're now understanding how, how much time is accumulated in different bouts of activity. And we're learning that many of us undertake many short bouts of physical activity throughout the day, like one minute, two minutes, three minutes, perhaps even less, 30 seconds, 20 seconds, 10 seconds. So devices are allowing us to look at the, ent the entire day, every single bout of activity that we do and activities across different types of activities, stair climbing, walking, running, cycling, etc. 
So providing insights into the role of sporadic incidental activity, things like climbing the stairs, we often forget about when we're self-reporting our physical activity, we're now able to capture those activities. Devices allow an assessment of all or most accumulated activity. I've put most there because we know devices aren't so good at capturing certain types of activities, um, particularly muscle strength if it's upper body and potentially balance activities as well. Devices obviously offer great potential for data pooling and harmonization. And ProPass is a prime example of a, of a project that's doing just that. I think devices have got the potential to offer deeper insights into the joint associations between physical activity and sedentary behavior. We already know that there's joint associations from the self-report data uh, from the Ulf Eklund paper in 2016, for example. Ulf and his team have now replicated similar results with, with device-based data. And I think as we accumulate more device-based data, we're going to understand that relationship even more closely. And devices are providing us with data on sleep. And I added that, this point in yesterday because having been in some of the sessions yesterday and seeing the first analysis that's been done, um, we're getting a lot of insight now into sleep, which is a behavior that we didn't typically consider in the physical activity field. So what are some of the implications for guideline development? I think one question we need to ask ourselves is whether we need to choose between self-report and device-based evidence. I, we, we obviously don't need to answer this question now because we're not in a position to move to device-based data, but there could become a point in time where we realize that self-report and device-based data are providing us with such different information that we're going to have to make a choice as to which one we value most and which one we're going to use to inform guidelines. Assuming at least for now we need to use both, we need to think about how we're going to decipher mixed messages that we get from devices and self-report. If devices tell us that one threshold is appropriate and self-report tells us a different threshold, how do we make sense of that and come up with uh, a robust guideline? How much weight should be placed on devices versus self-report data? If we think one type of data is providing stronger evidence, how do we place greater emphasis on that evidence in a good scientific way when constructing guidelines? Do we need to use the same type of data across all population groups? So when we're developing the guidelines, potentially in 2030, if we've got really strong device data for the adult population, is it sensible to use device data to inform the adult guidelines if we then rely on self-report data to inform other guidelines? Or does that give us a very patchy set of guidelines because they're informed by different types of data? With the different population groups in mind, um, there's also the need not to forget about population groups where we know there's, there's already a lack of evidence, uh, particularly people with chronic conditions and people with disabilities. We might need to consider a shift in the way we approach guidelines to account for the joint associations. So we typically put a threshold on each, whereas we know that the relationship is quite a bit more complex. And perhaps the next round of guidelines might include sleep. So we could be moving into a position where we consider a light, moderate, vigorous, sedentary and sleep. When we think about the implications of device data for guidelines, I think it's helpful to revisit the functions of guidelines. Guidelines, first and foremost, are there to provide consensus on the scientific evidence. It's a scientific process because we want to understand what we know about this dose-response relationship between the behavior and the health outcomes. 
But guidelines are also useful for underpinning monitoring and surveillance. So if we know how active people should be to benefit their health, we can then benchmark how many people within the population are meeting that level. Those two things combined can help, um, help us to set goals and targets around how much we want to increase the prevalence of the population that meets the guidelines. Guidelines can be used to raise awareness and knowledge among different groups, but that's not really what they were predominantly intended to do. So I'm going to come back to that point in a few minutes. Guidelines can inform national policy to support implementation actions, especially supported by some of some of this surveillance data. And they can guide future research directions. I think through the 2020 process, it really helps you to highlight what you don't know. So guidelines are really useful for summarising what you do know, but they point out what's needed next. And obviously, hence, we've now got ProPass because it was identified as a gap when we did the, the last guidelines. So I'm going to say a bit more about uh, some of these things and uh, not the ones that are in grey, just due to time. So firstly, providing consensus on the scientific evidence. Guidelines are first and foremost evidence-based statements on recommended activity for good health. So they provide statements on how active and what types of physical activity people need to do to achieve optimal health outcomes. They're developed by expert groups using the best available evidence. Now I've put best available because accuracy is key to science. Okay, so we've had some discussion this morning about which device placement is best. ProPass opted to go for thigh-worn accelerometry. There's other studies that we've heard about today and we know about generally that are using different device placement. Is there a need to agree on device placement? Is it okay that we all use diff different device placement based on what's feasible or what's already being done? And can we deal with that later in the kind of data processing stage? There's an issue with absolute versus relative intensity. So if we think about the tennis example that I gave a few, a few minutes ago, when we asked about the hour of tennis via self-report, we were told that it was all moderate to vigorous physical activity. Now, it could well have been moderate to vigorous physical activity. So that, that person may not have played tennis for 20 years and they may be quite unfit and the tennis was really intense. But we're now using device-based cutoffs and we go, no, sorry, actually, it wasn't moderate. Even if you think it was, we as scientists know best. So... It, it's not without possibility that using absolute guidelines, we misclassify people in a different way to how we would have done with self-report, but there's still potential for misclassification. We obviously also need to develop our understanding about what cut points are appropriate for different population groups. And there's obviously studies that have been published recently on that. We still also need to think about other populations. As I've mentioned, there's people living with chronic conditions, people with disabilities, et cetera. We, we need to come up with sensible cut points to deal with those types of data. Another question is how we deal with domains. If, I mean, the, uh, one important value of self-report is that it's given us a lot of contextual data, including domains. If we move to device-based data, and we lose that, we lose some important information. And I'm particularly thinking here about occupation. We know that occupation doesn't necessarily have the same health outcomes as leisure time physical activity. And that could be due to a whole range of confounding factors. But we know that that's a bit of an anomaly. So if we're only looking at total physical activity, we could find that we've got segments of the population that are highly active, but they don't. we don't see the 
positive health outcomes that we might expect. How are we going to continue to advance the science around muscle strength and balance activities if we become more reliant on devices that we know don't capture those things that well? And it's important to think as we are developing these cohorts or as Manos and the team are developing these sorts of cohort studies, it's important to think about specific population groups. And here I was thinking about uh, people with disabilities, in particular Manos, um, following uh, the guideline development process, I was involved. So I was involved in the disability guidelines and learned that there's actually very little evidence out there. And subsequently, me and Andy are supervising a PhD student who's gone and looked at how we measure disability in physical activity cohorts that include device based data. And we found that the measurement of disability in these studies is quite patchy. And that could be a reason why we've got a lack of evidence for disabled people on physical activity. So I think it's timely as we're setting up these cohorts to think about how we're measuring disabilities so that in 10 or 20 years time, we've not, not only got good cohort data for the general population, but we can also explore it for specific population groups. In terms of underpinning monitoring and surveillance, so monitoring and surveillance tracks compliance with guidelines. It's typically relied on self-report measures, as, as we all know, and as I've mentioned, typically captures leisure time physical activity, moderate to vigorous physical activity, and stuff that we can easily recall. Device-based data is going to provide a different picture of the prevalence of the population that meets guidelines. We're not entirely sure how different the picture is going to look, but for sure it's going to look different because it devices are giving us different information. A question that we've that's already been touched on this morning is, can we assess compliance with device-derived guidelines using self-report? And we probably can't. If guidelines become informed by devices, we probably need to move to, towards devices to assess compliance with the guidelines. So that brings in the question of how feasible device-based surveillance is. The presentation this morning on Surpass uh, is certainly very encouraging that we're moving towards more feasible uh, device-based surveillance. But again, we've also heard that in countries that don't have the internet or don't have mobile phone signals, there's still going to be a bunch of challenges uh, around the feasibility of this. In terms of raising awareness and knowledge among different groups, it's worth remembering that guidelines are not intended as public facing messages to motivate behavior change. The development of guidelines has always been a scientific process, but we seem to have fallen into a bit of a trap of coming up with scientific statements and then putting those statements on posters, websites and wherever else and saying, here's the message. There is an important translation phase that should follow guidelines, which is important for translating scientific statements into appropriate statements that speak to the different target audience that we're trying to reach. An important question here is how is how much these messages should reflect the science. Now, while accuracy is key to guidelines, I think accuracy is probably less important when it comes to messaging. And when we think about the messaging that we come up with, other things might be more important, like how easy are the guidelines to understand? Do they resonate with people? Are they perceived as achievable? Can people remember what they are? Those sorts of things will become far more important than the accuracy of a device, whether it was placed on the thigh or the, or the hip or the wrist. There's a different set of issues to consider when we think about messaging.
And formative evaluation and co-production are key. So we need to think about who the target audience is of the guidelines, and we need to work with them to develop messages that are useful for them and that meet their needs. So here I'm thinking about policymakers, I'm thinking about health professionals, and I'm also thinking about the general public. We know that the existence of guidelines and even the communication of guidelines in isolation isn't going to change population levels of behaviour. So we also need to think about what policies, environments and opportunities are needed to, to support population behaviour change. The final um, the function of guidelines that I'm just going to briefly touch on is future research directions. The paper that we wrote on this from the 2020 WHO guideline process clearly called for more prospective cohort studies that use device-based measures. So I applaud Manos and the team for really jumping on this and running with it. I think what you're doing with ProPass is hugely ambitious and, and very important for moving forward the field. And I'd just like to finish by reiterating the value of ProPass. Um, obviously, everybody knows what ProPass is, but it's providing pooled harmonized data of the bio-based cohort studies. I think you've currently got 12 international cohorts with over 70,000 participants. What's important about ProPass, or particularly important when we think about guidelines, is that ProPass is focused on prospective data. So these cohorts are going to gain value as the follow-up time for morbidity and mortality outcomes increases. So therefore, these data are going to be hugely important for informing future guidelines. I don't know how much data we're going to have in time for the 2030 guidelines, especially given Fiona said you need the data published by 2027. Uh, but certainly by 2040, the guideline development process or certainly the evidence that we draw on to inform the guidelines in 2040 is definitely going to look quite different to what it did last time around. Finally, uh, obviously, ProPass has clear ambitions to expand the evidence base into low and middle income countries. This is something that ISPA is particularly keen to support. And yeah, one of the main reasons why we've established this formal partnership with ProPass and we're, we're very much looking forward to, to trying to achieve this together. Uh, thank you for your attention. I hope I'm within time and look forward to some discussion. That's great. Thank you, Karen. You are, uh, you are absolutely um, within time. Uh, we've had a handful of questions come through uh, the chat while you've been speaking. Uh, I'm not gonna have time to go through all of them, I'm afraid, because I. I think um, it would be great if we can kind of stick as closely to the program um, as we can. But one of the questions that has come through um, relates to one of those first slides that you presented on, on the example of an hour of tennis and how that is captured um, differentially based on, on self-report um, versus device-based data. And I'm assuming that that was kind of hypothetical data that you... Mm -hmm presented there in terms of the, yeah. the absolute differences but it's important and it, it it clearly has an impact on um on the evidence base and and that feeds through into kind of etiological studies uh etiological analyses of how behavior is related to health so i, I wondered what's your sense at this point on on how we kind of manage those two streams of, of physical activity data and, and how we accommodate those differences in uh, kind of guidelines over the next, um, I guess, 10, 20 years where the volume of, of device-based evidence is, is going to really start to, to grow, I think. 
It's an, it's an excellent question, Andy, and I can't answer it with any confidence. I think we're, as we enter this kind of phase in the kind of emergence of device-based data is, is probably the trickiest time. I think as we've got more and more data, we'll have more and more confidence that it's the device that we should be relying on. I think given the huge volume of self-report data that we've currently got, when it comes to the next round of guidelines, we're going to have some really good data from devices, but it's going to be very small in comparison to the huge body of evidence that we've got from self-report. So we we can't ignore it. Um, we obviously need to probably place quite a lot of emphasis on it because we know that it's not subject to some of these recall biases and other limitations with self-report, with over-reporting, for example. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know exactly how we're going to deal with it, but it, it's something, it's one of the biggest challenges that we need to start thinking about now, I think, because we're going to get to 2027 and have to make some pretty important decisions about how we kind of weight the data or, yeah, I, I, I can't give a concrete answer on how we should tackle that. I think we're all hoping for a concrete answer. <laughs> I'm going to start um, thinking so, about it for sure. <laughs> um, so I think we can maybe just squeeze in one more before we move on to the to the next presentation. And um, this one relates to how we group uh, the population and we provide different guidelines on the basis of age group. And I think something that we're all quite aware of is how um, Come particular birthdays in your um, in a person's lifespan, the quantity or type and form of physical activity that they need to take to comply with guidelines changes quite radically in some cases. And I, you know, I think that the transition from from childhood into adulthood, that, that kind of eighteen years or so on, is one of those in particular. So, I wonder if you see a way where device-based data. Or, or guidelines in general might evolve to perhaps soften these quite harsh transitions, or indeed whether you believe that is a problem. Maybe that's just a, that's that is acceptable. Okay, so yeah, a couple of a couple of thoughts on this. So obviously, guidelines are derived from the data that's available to inform them. So that partly explains how why why we need to make decisions about changes at certain age groups. So. The studies that we develop, uh, the guidelines we develop for adults come from data from studies of, you know, people of eight, 18 years or over and studies that inform children and adolescents guidelines, you know, go up to that age. So because we're looking at different bodies of evidence to inform guidelines for different age groups, that's why we end up with quite different um different guidelines because we're, we're looking at very different sets of evidence data that's been captured in different ways you know even with, with self-report we've asked different questions so we cannot yeah we we cannot it's not even compare but it's just it's just very different data so we have to take each data pool of data as it is and we come up with a guideline i think it is problematic to some extent that you have a birthday and then suddenly you have to do way less physical activity we could uh, overcome some of that with some careful messaging. And as I've said in my presentation, 
what we know from the science isn't necessarily what we need to convey to the general public. I think it is slightly confusing to say to people, if you're 17, do this much, and if you're 18, do that much, because to the general population, we go, well, why? Like, is there a health benefit or is there not? Uh, so, yeah, I think we we need to separate science from communication. But I think devices are going to change the landscape there. I think we're going to have a, a much more consistent type of data for all population groups. And so th therefore we won't, it'll be a much more kind of continuous, it's not a continuous variable, but you know what I mean? It, there's not this, uh, it won't be two distinct sets of data anymore, but it will become more, uh, yeah, there'll be less clear, clear joins. Good stuff. Thank you, Karen. That's a difficult question, I think. And I think your point about messaging is, is really key there in distinguishing the scientific process from, from what we convey to the public. Okay. Uh, that was excellent, Karen. We set you a very challenging scope for that presentation, I think, a, a very wide remit. And you, you did a great job of, of kind of navigating your way through that and providing all of us, I think, with, with lots of things to think about. So, um, yeah, great job. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.